Welcome to Bible study. We're glad you're here. I have brought this ridiculous thing down into the basement so that I can wear it, see what happens. But uh, glad you're here. We're going to start our time with some prayer and then uh, get going and see what God might say to us through the Bible. I might say to us by His Spirit tonight. Father, thanks for opportunity to meet. We thank you, God, for your presence. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit, He teaches us. He leads us into truth. He helps us to understand, and He helps us as we connect with our Creator, and we connect with our God. We thank you for that. We ask God for revelation tonight. We pray for understanding. Ask God that you would open up the Scriptures to us, and that we would have open hearts and open minds to receive what you want to say tonight. So, have your way in us. Have your way in this place. Pray, God, for your power. Pray, God, for your anointing. Ask God that you be glorified. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you have Bibles, let's open up to 1 Kings chapter 8. There should be some Bibles on the tables. And you can feel free to grab one if you didn't get one. Grab one off the table. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible Study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. It could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. It could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. 1 Kings chapter 8 is where we'll be heading. 1 Kings 8 and verse 46. First Kings 8, 46. Any volunteer read that? All right, thanks. Uh, it's just a, what I did was I took a verse out of a prayer, and it was, a, it was a pretty long prayer that Solomon was praying. And it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting verse because it's prophecy. I mean, he's praying, and he's asking God for certain things, and if you look at the whole prayer, and feel free, in 1 Kings 8, 
take a look at what he's praying and what he's saying. Uh, but I wanted to concentrate just on this verse because I believe there's some truth in that that we need to hear, that we need to take to heart, that we need to apply to our lives. And so this is a picture, and just to draw a picture for you of what's going on, uh, this is a prayer of consecration. Uh, there'd been a special altar set up, and Solomon is kneeling before the altar with his hands raised, and he's praying. Interestingly, the consecration that's being done for the temple uh, was being done not by a priest, but by the king. And that's kind of an interesting thing because uh, it just emphasizes, it highlights the way that things were set up in Israel uh, during this time, and that is that Israel was a theocracy. Uh, we are a democracy, a democratic republic in the United States. Uh, other countries have different forms of government, uh, different ways of ruling over people or whatever, and representing people. Well, Israel was a theocracy. In other words, theoretically, they were governed and they were directed by God. The king was an intermediary with that. And if you look at the history of Israel, what you see is that's exactly what happened. Is that you had God who was directing, you had God that was proclaiming, you had God that revealed the law to them. They, they had all of these things, and yet if they had a corrupt king, they went corrupt as a nation. And that was just the way that it went. And, and that's the history of Israel. So, first king of Israel and God didn't really want to give him a king, but they asked him for one, they went after him for one, and so he gave them what they were looking for, and so Saul was king, and then after Saul was David, and after Saul, after David was Solomon. So Solomon was the third king of Israel. So if you, if you go forward, though, into looking at the kings that came after Solomon, what you begin to see is that there would every now and then be a good king, and things in the land would go well. But then every now and then there'd be a really, really bad king, and idol worship would come, and there would be all kinds of problems in the land. And so you had this give and take that would take place depending on who the king was. So you had Israel, you had Judah. Uh, after a while, you had a divided kingdom, and so there was one king in one, one king in the other. And you can look at the fortunes of how they went based on the king. And eventually what happened was, and this is the, the word of prophecy that Solomon is giving here, eventually what happened was they became so corrupt that they were overtaken by their enemies and then they were led into captivity. And that's exactly what he was saying. That's what he was prophesying while, even while he was praying. So, looking at that... Uh, First of all, I just want to mention that his form of worship, and, and you see this form of worship through the Old Testament, you see this form of worship in the Psalm, and you see the Psalms, and you see this form of worship in the New Testament, where it talks about kneeling, and I think most of us have that, we kind of understand that. If you grew up in a more traditional church, it may have been that your church had little kneeling benches that would flip down from underneath the pew in front of you. And, and that would give you the opportunity to kneel, but not all the way on the floor. And, uh, or some of you that, uh, maybe didn't have that, uh, you've been to a wedding before, and you've seen that there's a part of the wedding where the bride 
and the groom may kneel during the ceremony. And every now and then the groom will have one of his best man or somebody write something on the bottom of his shoe like, help me. You ever see that? Anything? All right. So kneeling is a part, kind of a, a normal part of our tradition as Christians that it's just something that we understand. The other part of what was going on there, though, he was lifting his hand. And the lifting of hands sometimes, I think people think it's more controversial than it is. It's not really a controversial way of worship because you see it, like I said, throughout the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, that it was just a normal expression of worship. And you think about why people raise their hands in our society. Uh, like, why would somebody raise their hands? Like, both their hands at once. Yeah, yeah, you might have the answer to a question, but that's usually one hand. Why would somebody raise both hands? All right, so that's a universal sign of surrender, all right? Or Because, I mean, you know, somebody walks up like in a movie and they're like, oh, stick them up. What are you talking about? Put your hands up, right? And and so they're calling for a surrender because you're obviously, uh, i got a gun on you, so we're going to move on from there. So it's, a, it's an act of surrender. But it's also, um, think about a football game. Why do raise, people raise their hands in a football game? Yeah, it could be, I mean, it's, it could be a goal, it could be a, um, a touchdown, a field goal, whatever. And people are cheering, they're exuberant, and they're excited. And so, you know, just in the basic, and, and same thing if you want to answer a question, right? If you're really excited to answer a question, you know, you put your hands up, right? And, and there's a certain amount of exuberance and a certain amount of of uh, joy, and it's an expression of that. So you look at those two expressions, surrender and joy, and that makes sense that those are normal human expressions that we, even in modern society, use to express our emotions. Uh, people have used those symbols to express their emotions for thousands of years. It's nothing new. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, in the traditional church, some of that has been lost. Um, unknown why. I don't know. Kind of same with shouting. Like shouting is, is a, people shout when they're excited, right? And so shouting is, is a normal, lifting your voice, raising your voice is a normal expression of emotion, even in our society, but that's, people don't normally do that in church. So if it's not a part of your experience, then it may seem like, oh, well, that's different. And it is different. But throughout the Old and New Testament, it was normal. And so it's something that I just want to encourage you toward, that there's more ways to express yourself than maybe what you've done in the past. There's more ways that you can express emotion to God, more ways that you can express emotion uh, in, in say in a church setting or in some kind of a group setting than maybe what you've done in the past. And if you're shy, I get it. You're shy. Um, I, I it's just a part of, of your personality or whatever who you are. I can still encourage you toward it. That that maybe if it's time and, and you're excited about something or maybe you want to express to God that you surrender. Uh, and you lift your hands. Maybe you're excited about something and you lift your hands. Maybe you're excited about something and you shout or you raise your voice for that and, and you share that excitement. It's okay. And, and I just want to say that you want to do that in church, that's fine with me. 
You want to do it at a kinship, that's fine with me. And uh, we not only expect it, but we want to encourage it toward it too. And if it's not something that comes naturally to you, you may have to think about it to do it. But I encourage you toward it. It might be a, a valuable expression for you in some moments. It might be a valuable expression for you in, in times of worship. It might be a valuable expression for you in times of prayer, like what's going on here. And, and so you don't want to limit your expression because it's something new to you. And, and so you just want to, to me, I want to be able to express myself. I want to be free. And I want to have liberty to express myself. And that's what I want to share with you. So I encourage you toward that. And even as we see Solomon here, he's kneeling. Okay. But he has his hands raised. And, and he's praying loudly enough for no one knows how many people are hearing him pray right now. It could have been 100,000 people, 50,000 people. We don't know how many people would have been gathered around to hear him. But he's obviously lifting his voice. And to pray. And so we see this as a word of prophecy, just sharing that. It's not just a prayer, but it's a word of prophecy. And if you look at his whole prayer that, that he shares here in 1 Kings 8, what you see is a bunch of elements to it. Uh, what does prayer consist of? Well, he brings glory to God. He praises. He asks for grace. He asks for favor with God. He's doing all those things. And, and he's, he's experiencing God doing what he says he's going to do. How is he experiencing that? Well, the God's spoken to David. David expressed to God, said, I want to build you a temple in Jerusalem. And God said to David, he's like, no, you're not going to do it. Uh, you have too much blood on your hands or whatever, you know, he meant by that to David. And, but he said that his son would, and that was Solomon. And so what God had said was coming to pass, and they saw it. They saw it come to pass. And so he was recognizing this is something God does what he says. And it's important for us to recognize those moments when God does what he says, that we see that happening. And, and, and I, I don't know how else to express it except for that you need to have your eyes open in order to see that. Because, I mean, we can go through our whole life with blinders on, on and pretend that things just happen. We can do that. Oh, yeah, it's just a coincidence. Well, how, what's our limit of coincidence? You know, infinite? Do you have an infinite limit of coincidence in your life that all these things just happen to work out? All these things just happen to take place? All these things just happen to come to pass in this particular order for this particular thing to happen? Um, that takes more faith than believing that God may have orchestrated a few things for you. I mean, just to believe in that many coincidences takes more faith. I, I, I can believe that a God that I serve that is intelligent and that is all-powerful, can bring circumstances to bear and bring circumstances about that can lead into certain things happening in my life. That's a lot easier for me to believe than random chance brought about these specific things that took place in my life. It's easier for me to believe God's done that. I mean, you think about just rolling dice. If you roll up three, three twelves in a row... That's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, shocking. 
Yeah, now start thinking about how the pieces of your life fell together. All right? So that's a lot harder than rolling three twelves in a row. All right? It's, it's, it's astronomically more difficult. I mean, I can figure out the combinatorics of rolling up three twelves in a row. It's not impossible. But certain things that have happened in our lives would be impossible to happen by chance. So think about that. Think about the times that God has moved, that God's done according to his word, that God's brought things about that he said he was going to do in your life. And, and try not to ignore it. Try not to just look past it. Try not to dismiss it again. Oh, wow, that, that's great. That just worked out. Well, I don't know that it just worked out. But I think we serve a God that loves us. I believe we serve a God that cares for us. I believe we serve a God that is that is intimately involved in our lives. Whether we want to recognize Him or not, He just is. Whether we want to think He is or not, He is. And, and He's moving and He's working in our life. And so I just want to encourage you to be more aware of that and be thinking about that. He asks for favor, for grace and favor with God. And I learned a, a bunch of lessons about that over the years. Uh, I started off my my ministry, doing ministry, on a college campus out in western New York. And through that, I, I began to plant campus ministries all over New York State uh, and eventually ended up at Syracuse University. And through the time at Syracuse University, there was a changeover in the leadership over at Henry's Chapel. And I can remember the first time that there was a, a potential change in leadership. Uh, the guy that had actually hired me was leaving to go uh, take over a program and um, and out over in France or somewhere, and so they were bringing in an interim chaplain. And so I had prayed specifically. I said, this is you know who I'd love to see come in. And so the guy came in. He was awesome. The guy that came in. It wasn't what I prayed, but he was really, really an awesome guy. And, and he helped me, and he looked out for me, and he looked out for our group, he looked out for our ministry, he looked out for our chaplaincy, and we were able to move forward as a chaplaincy under that guy. And so then, it, it, it came about that, uh, it was, he was leaving, the interim time was over, the other guy was retiring, and so they had to hire somebody, and one of the chaplains was a friend of mine. And so, wow, I really, you know, I pray he gets it, because then I got it made, right? <laughs> I already got favor with this guy. And and so I I prayed that, so the guy got the job and ended up being terrible, because the, the friendship that we had was done once he had the position. And the friendship that we had experienced together was done once he had moved into that leadership role. And it became very difficult for us to do our ministry. It became very difficult for us to move forward. It became very difficult for us to go about the work that God had called us to do. And God taught me lessons through all of those things that I'm looking for the wrong things, maybe. And that when I pray, maybe you know I shouldn't be praying so much for favor with people. But maybe I should just be praying for favor with God. 
And so I changed the way I prayed. I changed the way that I, I would go about interceding for situations or go about interceding for where we are or where the group I was in was or where the church is. And instead of asking for favor with people, and I don't, I don't even know, you know, who I'd be talking about at this point, but favor with, you know, and, and this is fruitless, but like, you know, favor with our landlord. And if you know our landlord, that's a joke. All right. But, but let's say I was going to pray for favor because he was another lesson in this. We had an old landlord. And he, and he was selling it, so I was praying, oh, good, a new landlord, this should work out great. No, it's worse. And, and so, I guess what I'm getting at is that, is Solomon prayed that there's some wisdom in this. There's wisdom in his prayer that, that he's praying for grace and favor with God. And, and so, yeah, that, that was a lesson I had to learn, in some ways learn a hard way. Because situations, circumstances change, people change, all of those things. But God doesn't. And if I'm going to pray for favor with anybody, it's going to be Him. And so I I just hand you that as just learn from my mistakes kind of thing. And so he gets down here into the verse, and he makes a statement. He says, everybody sins. Does your Bible say that pretty much? Everybody sins. Okay, so... You got the wisest man who ever lives, and he just makes a statement, everybody sins. And one of the things he was praying over the people, and we've talked about this in the past, is that he was praying, he asked God to teach the people to profit by everything. And and so he was really teaching the, 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 he was asking God to teach people, how do you profit by everything? In the New Testament, uh, it's worded this way. It says that God works all things together for good to those who are called according to His purposes. That's how it says it in the New Testament. And and that's what, that's what Solomon was praying for the people, that they would begin to understand that. They'd begin to enter into a newer kind of, a, a more a deeper and more powerful wisdom in their own lives and that they would be taught to profit by everything that they experience. In other words, things are going great. Well, I need to learn how to profit by that. Because a lot of times when things go great, everybody gets, we get lazy. Right? And, and we're not really profiting anything. We're just lazy. Because everything's going good. And then things go badly, or things go poorly, or not according to the plan. And all of a sudden we snap to, we wake up, and we really start working. And we start doing something. And so it may be in those times that we see more of a profit than we do even in the good times. And what God wants to do is, I believe, and what Psalm was praying for is to teach us how to profit in every time. And whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation, whatever it is we find ourselves in, to be a people who can take hold of whatever our circumstance is and we can profit from it. I have a financial advisor. I do. And that doesn't mean I have a fortune or hardly any finances. It just means I have an advisor. And and I think my financial advisor feels sorry for me 
because what happened was is that the guy who was my financial advisor to start with, he's made a really a whole lot of money, not off of me, but off of whoever he's advising. And the reason I know he's made a whole lot of money is I've watched him progress through houses and cars, okay? And so, you know, he had a house, he sold it, he went over to Radisson, had a house in Radisson, nice place, didn't like it, went out to Skinny Atlas, built a house, all right? Nice, right? Decided, didn't want to live up here anymore, went down to Naples, Florida, has a house there now and just flies back to meet with people. Okay? So, needless to say, he got rid of me. Alright? Must have been the lowest bidder. I don't know what happened, but he hired another guy, and the guy that he hired said, alright, well, I'll take Andy. Alright? And not that I wanted the other guy, it's just the guy I got. And so, I've been meeting with him, and it turns out he, you know, represents a lot of people. He's advised a lot of people with a lot of money. And uh, he was telling me the other day, uh, or last time I was there, that I was probably the, the, um, the, I don't know what I would say, the least valuable portfolio that he oversees. I think that's maybe how he put it. I can't remember. Yeah. Which is okay with me. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, you want, if you're going to have a, you know, live anywhere, you want the, the worst house in the best neighborhood, right? So, I'm the worst portfolio in the good neighborhood of financial advisors. So, so anyway, something that, that he's taught me over the years, and he's taught me not because he said it to me, but because I've watched it happen, is that no matter what happens with the market, if you are positioned correctly, you can profit from whatever is going on. Because most of us think in terms of, oh, you know, if, if the stock market's high, then I'm making more money. Well, that, that could be true. And then if the stock market drops, and I'm, oh, I'm losing money. Well, not if you're positioned correctly. And that's kind of the point. And so, and that's something that I've been learning over time. I don't really watch the stock market because whatever. You know, it doesn't really matter so much to me. It's not like I got, you know, I'm, I'm rolling in dough in the stock market or anything. But, and so I don't really pay that much attention to it. But I can always tell when the stock market goes down because this guy leaves messages on my phone. And he's leaving messages on my phone because, you know, he's, he's reassuring me that everything's okay. And I know it's just, uh, it's, it's just kind of a normal thing. He has to go through all of his clients in order to reassure him that everything's okay. And and I've told him before, I'm like, you don't have to call me because I'm reassured it's okay. And he's like, well, you know, you're just on the list. I'm like, right, but you don't have to call me because you keep calling me and there's no reason to. It's okay. I'm reassured. Everything's fine. But I've learned over the years, and this was the thing that, that the guy who lives in Naples told me about the guy that he handed me off to. He's like, this guy knows how to put you in position in the stock market. And he does. And so I, I don't lose my my two mites when the stock market goes down. And I, I in fact, I gain. And I gain when the stock market goes up. He's a good guy. Good guy to have. And and to me, that it's just kind of a weird example, I know. But it's, a, it's an example of how we profit 
no matter what the circumstance, that we keep ourselves in the right position, that God teaches us how to be in the right position to profit no matter what's happening around us. I mean, things can go really bad, and those can be some of the best times of our life. And then he's like, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean by that, that, you know, I look back on some hard times in my life, and I may not have felt this way during it, but in looking back, I see how God took care of me. And I see how God took care of June and how he took care of our family. You know, we were, when we first were married, I had a job, and I was making okay money for then, for the 80s. And, and I quit my job because I felt like God told me to. And so after I quit my job, it wasn't like money just flowed in. Uh, we started raising money as home missionaries, and that takes a while. That's not something that just happens. And you can ask Tom and Lori about that, or Sarah, how hard is it to raise money? Okay? It's not easy. Because everybody's got bills, and they're just, everybody's barely making their bills, even if they're not. They just are. Okay? And so for them, for people to take out of their funds in order to support somebody else, that takes a while. And it takes some work, and it takes a lot of effort to, to build up a support base, a loyal support base like that. And so I was in process of doing that. And, and so we were living on anywhere between, I don't know, like 280 and $500 a month. And we had bills to pay, like everybody else. We had a mortgage at that time, which wasn't high. It just was a mortgage that we had to pay. Um, we had car, two cars uh, that were paid off, but they had to be maintained. And we had to put gas in them. And, and so there were these, it was not a lot of money. But those were times where God miraculously supplied for us, uh, where people would leave groceries on our at our front door. And we just go out in the morning to be two bags, three bags of groceries sitting outside of our door. Or uh, we went to a minister's meeting one time, and we left there a car just brimming over with groceries. Not, not even expected. They just blessed us. I mean, there's a whole line of people just carrying out, carrying them out, carrying them out. We had a hatchback. We had the seats down. It was just full of food. Or people giving us clothes or whatever it was, but it was just miraculous provision. Miraculous provision. And and so, I, I can't look back on that and say, well, I wasn't blessed during that. It was just hard at the time. But I look back and I know God's blessing was all over it. And I know that God was profiting me as a person, as a believer, through that. He was building my faith. He was building my trust. He was assuring me that he has me. He was assuring me that he would take care of me. He was assuring me that he was looking out for me. He was looking out for June. He was assuring me that obedience leads to success in the kingdom. That's what he was assuring me of. And he just didn't leave me hanging out to dry. Because I, I could tell you a few nights going to sleep, you know, Hearing my mother-in-law saying how I'm leading the family into financial ruin. Well-meaning, and I know she loves me, sort of, but I'm telling you, 
I remember, you know, like hearing those words and they just echo in my mind. Like, yeah, maybe I am. I don't feel that way now. And I didn't feel that way after all of that happened and everything came about and needed to come about in our lives. I, I didn't feel that way again. I knew God had me. And so I profited from what some people would think would be, oh, that's terrible. Well, it's not terrible. I profited in a way that affected the rest of my life. And God needs to teach us how to do that. Well, you know, hard times, bad times. I was just listening to Led Zeppelin 1 earlier. Anyway, <laughs> hard times, bad times, or whatever it is. I mean, those are times of profit for us if we learn how to do that. And I encourage you toward it, too. So Solomon prayed that for for the people. He's like, teach them how to do that. Because you know what? Everybody sins. Everybody sins. It's the universal corruption that's in us. People sin openly and willfully. You know, I'm not even talking about like, oh, I made a mistake. That's not That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you look at your life. You know, I... How many times in your life you're just like, oh, I'm going to do this anyway. I know I shouldn't. I'm doing it. That's a willful sin, right? Like you didn't get trapped. You didn't, it wasn't like you were just walking along and sin fell on you. You know, it wasn't like that. You know, you're just in a situation like, I'm going to do this. That's it. Boom. And so everybody sins though. Everybody sins even like that. And I mean, you may look at me and say, I never do that, Andy. You're a liar. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, yeah. So, so this is the nature of who we are. It's the universal corruption that we have. And Solomon understood that. Uh, somebody look at Ecclesiastes 7.20. It's, uh, it's just later in life with Solomon. That is something he understood here in 1 Kings 8.46 when he's praying for this consecration. But also at the, toward the end of his life when he's older, you know, Ecclesiastes is writing this. And everybody, you know, looks at Ecclesiastes and judges Solomon for Ecclesiastes. But there's really no reason to judge him. It wasn't something he, it wasn't something he discovered later in life. This was something he knew. So any, anybody, Ecclesiastes 7.20. All right. So even later in life, he repeats it, right? It wasn't like he came up with that later. This was something that he knew. It was something that he had proclaimed earlier. And it was something that he repeated later on in life when he wrote again. And so unless unless our sin is prevented somehow by grace, uh, we're prone to it. We just are. And because we're prone to sin, uh, there, there are consequences to it. Now, by that, do I mean God's just waiting for us to sin so he can send the lightning bolt? No. No, no. There, there are principles. There are spiritual principles in life that, that, that when we do something, we sow to something that we reap. Now, we don't always reap because, like I said, some, sometimes grace prevents that. Right? But every now and then, if you sow to something long enough, or you sow to something strong enough, you may reap something from that. All right? I, and, and I'm not saying, 
I, you can't get mad about it. I mean, you can try to get mad about it, you can try to get bitter about it, but the reality of it is there's nothing to get mad or bitter about. We have to understand there are consequences to our actions. And because there are consequences to our actions, there's sometimes we're going to face things that, that are a result of that. And that's nothing to get mad about, that's nothing to get bitter about, it's something to learn from. And, you can profit from it. And that's the part we have to learn. How you profit from that. Three things that you can see that are um, alluded to in this prayer. And I'm just going to share the words with you and a brief definition. But here are the three things. Depravity. What's depravity? Depravity is a corrupt act or practice depraved depravity it's a corrupt act or practice and we got plenty of those i know you don't like the word depravity or depraved but if you look at it for a simple definition of what it means we got plenty of things that are corrupt in us we have corrupt ways of going about things sometimes and whatever that act is whatever that practice is in our life we need to learn don't do that. We need to learn to step away from that. We need to learn not to trust in that. I mean, for some of us, you know, if we get caught doing something, all right, for some people it's just a, it's an automatic, they're going to lie to you about it. That's just automatic. That is a corrupt act or practice. And, and it's just not, it's not something that benefits anybody. Those are one of those situations that, when, when you lie about something, like in the moment, where you have, really have a chance to think about it, if your first reaction is to lie about something, chances are you're going to get caught. Alright? So you're going to sow that lie, and then you're going to reap the embarrassment of getting caught in it. And whatever else comes with that. Now you're going to get bitter about getting caught? Or are you going to learn, oh, that's because I opened my big fat mouth when I should have just stayed quiet or I should have just told the truth. And I need to stop this, this, this way of doing things. I need to stop this practice in my life and just quit it. Quit it. You know, I work with people so much and that happens so often that I just ignore it most of the time. And I know that maybe I shouldn't Maybe I should just be a lot more caring of the people, but you know what? If I, if I really, if I really slap down every time somebody just lied to my face trying to cover up something, I'd be really busy slapping down stuff. And so it's easier for me just to ignore it most of the time. Now people that are good friends with me or people that are friends with me, they know I know. Alright? Because I'll give them a look like, I don't believe you. They'll give me a look like, you caught me. And then we just move on. <laughs> going to move on after that. Not going to embarrass anybody, just let's move on. The issue that we have in our heart, though, is that we need to change. And we need to, to encourage ourselves toward change in these areas of our lives. So that's depravity. Treachery. 
Treachery is a violation of allegiance. A violation of allegiance. It's treason. And this is a, a matter of faithfulness in our life. I look for nothing more in people, and I will pour my life into you if you're faithful. And and that's just always been the case. You can be stupid. You can be obnoxious. You can be rude. But if you're faithful, I'll pour my life into you. Because to me, that is so much more important. So much more important than being dumb as a stump. So treachery comes about when we become unfaithful to people that we should be aligned to. you got people in your life that care about you. You should have some form of allegiance toward them. You have people in your life that have sacrificed for you. You should have some form of faithfulness toward those kind of people. To those people in your life. You've got people that have sacrificed. You've got people that have given when they didn't have anything to give. You have people that sacrifice what they have so that you can have. And those are people that you need to be faithful to. You need to have an allegiance toward. Because one thing happens over time, and I don't say this just to be mean or anything, but if you're going to choose to live, you're going to make that your practice to be a treacherous person, you're going to get what you give. Because one day you'll wake up and wonder why you don't have any friends, for example. Why no one cares about you the way they care about other people. And there's a simple answer to that. You're reaping what you've sown. And so it's in our best interest to stop that quickly and and be a people that are faithful. Be a people that have an allegiance to those that care. You can start that with God, but then you think about all the people around you that care about you. Whether or not you care about them, that's a whole other story, but people care about you. So, and be careful how you define that, too. How do people care about you? By saying nice things to you? Maybe. But ultimately, people care about you through what they do, not what they say. And so, you may have people that have trouble expressing themselves in words, but will serve, will go out of their way to help, will give. And those two, that's what you need to pay attention to. That's what you need to pay attention to. Because we all know people that are kind of rough around the edges. And they're not really lovey-dovey. But, man, they're there. And you can count on them. So that's what you want to pay attention to. Third thing that's implied here in the things that Solomon mentions is this area of temptation in our life where we become enticed towards something. And that's the devil's work. He tempts. 
And, and so being aware of that, being aware of areas where you're tempted. Now, I've said this before, and, and I'll say it again. I want you to hear it again. You're, you're tempted by things that you can actually do. Okay? Those are your strongest temptations. It's like, well, what can I actually do? Well, that's it. You're not really tempted by things that you can't do. It just doesn't work that way. And so you're looking at things that are within your grasp. You're looking at things that are within your reach. You're looking at things that are actually around you and in your life. That, that's where temptation comes. It's through things that you covet. It's through things that, that you see every day. Those are the places of temptation in your life. It's not so much the exotic. It's not so much the far away. It's not so much the stuff that's just out there. It's what's right in front of you. It's what you're looking at. It's what you're spending your time on. And so those are the areas to be careful. Those are the areas to, to take note of. And those are the areas that you want to shore up and be strong in. So he mentions in his prophecy, all the things I just said happened to Israel. Every single one of them. He prophesied it. It happened. They turned away to foreign gods. They turned away to foreign worship. They sinned. They, they mixed with the people that were in their nation, the idol worshipers and all of that. And they began to participate with them in their sin. But those are the people they were around every day. Those are the people they saw every day. Those are the people that they were giving their daughters to and their sons to in marriage. They were the people that they were mixing in with their families. And it became overwhelming and they fell to the temptation. And it happened over and over and over and over again. And God would send prophets. He would send kings. He would send people to bring correction he would send people to lead them back into the ways that God had ordained for them. He would do those things. They would go back into those ways for a little while. Then they'd begin to follow after the old ways, follow after the idol worship, and they would fall away again. And you see this process over and over in the life of the nation. Well, one of the great tools in the Old Testament is to be able to look at the people of Israel and in and, and Judah and look at their patterns in their life and then compare that to the patterns in our lives and just look and see you know how long did God have grace on his people I mean anybody know that was a long time you know it was it was a long time how many generations had come and gone how many kings had come and gone in the northern, the southern kingdom? How many prophets had he sent? How many kings had come and been raised up and died? It was generation after generation after generation. You know, even, even in the beginning, you look at the creation story, and you look at all that time up until Noah, how much time passed in there? We have no idea. I mean, those cats were living to be like 900 years old. I mean, how long? I don't know. All right? They, they were, it was, it, we don't know. And, and I mean, literally thousands of years would pass. And God's just being patient. 
God's trying to correct. God's bringing correction. And so the only reason I'm sharing that with you is that I think sometimes in our lives, we think, oh, we're right on the edge of destruction. You're not on the edge of destruction. Not when it comes to God. You may destroy your own life. I'll give you that. But God's patient. He's long-suffering. He's full of grace and He's full of mercy. He's full of love for you. He's pulling for you. He wants you to change. He wants you to, to grow. He wants you to mature. He's looking for that. That's what He's looking for. And so, and so we can't, the, the pressure on us isn't coming from God. And I know you were taught something differently and I think people are just afraid to teach this because they think, well, people will just become lazy and complacent and they won't change. Well, I'd rather have you lazy and complacent than hiding. Because what the other thing produces is you pretending and hiding. And I think that is death. I think you bring death to yourself by doing that. Oh, I'm okay. No, you're not. Oh, I got it under control. No, you don't. Oh, I don't deal with that anymore. Yes, you do. And I can go down a whole list of things, ways that we answer people, especially religious people. It's like when they, they're asking about our good. And you know they're only asking about our good because they want to judge you. And so you come up with some false answer. You come up with some lie and say, yeah, everything's good. When you know it's not. See, I think that's just death. And so I'd rather take a chance on you being a little bit lazy and a little bit complacent. Because I think it's easier for the Holy Spirit to motivate you forward than, than it is to just uh, call you out as a liar. It's easier to wake somebody up than it is to raise them from the dead. Okay? And so I'd rather be in the process with each one of you is, is waking you up than trying to raise you from the dead. So that that's my point on it. And so I'm teaching this because I really believe it and I think it's taught throughout the scriptures. God has a lot of mercy and a lot of grace and a lot of long suffering in our life. And he doesn't give us like that long suffering, that grace and that mercy so we can just do whatever we want. But he gives us an opportunity to change. He gives us an opportunity to grow. Because as Solomon said, everybody sins. Everybody. We all got our problems. Depravity, treachery, uh, temptation. All of us face those things. And, and we're given the opportunity to grow and change. If it's a known fact that we're all facing these things, how would it make any sense for our God to just strike people down. Why? It doesn't make any sense at all. He gives us opportunity for change. You're more likely to hurt yourself than for him to hurt you. So we get into, and I'm going to finish up in a few minutes, but we get into, and he talks about captivity. And, and there was a captivity. Babylon came, and they defeated, eventually down the line, they defeated Judah was the last kingdom to fall, and they carried the people away captive to Babylonia. Nebuchadnezzar, remember him, and Daniel, and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, you know these stories, Daniel and the lion's den, that was all in Babylonia, because they were carried off there, and they were led into captivity because of all the things that had happened. And all the times that they had just ignored God. And again, this wasn't like, you know, last year. 
This was hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, that they had been fluctuating and they'd been turning away and they'd been doing whatever they wanted to do. And so where were they led? They were led as prisoners. And, and they were these prisoners, they were unsettled, they were uncomfortable. They were not where they wanted to be. They weren't doing what they wanted to do, were they? No. And if you think about our lives, you start finding yourselves in, we start finding ourselves in things that we don't want to be doing. You know, we find ourselves in bad habits that form in our life, or we find ourselves in addictions that we become a slave to. Because addictions, a lot of times, they're going to start, and I don't have the psychology behind addictions, but a lot of times addictions will start to fill a hole that's in our life. And it's not something that God created in us, it's something that we've created, most of us through our decisions and through our judgments and through our bitterness, through pushing people away. And we find ourselves in this dark spot and in that dark spot there's this one thing and if we keep doing it, it kind of distracts us from that dark place that we find ourselves in. And it could be a habit or it could be an addiction or whatever it's going to be. It brings temporary, what we think is temporary relief to whatever circumstance we're in. But we just really become a slave. And there's something really unsettling about that. There's something uncomfortable. And it's really not where we want to be. I mean, most people that are, that are, that have addictions, they don't want to be there. Who wants to be addicted to something like that? Alcoholics? I mean, you might find alcoholics that'll keep drinking and they're not going to do what they need to do in order to be set free. But that doesn't mean they want to be there, does it? Not to me it doesn't. Drug addicts? Really? People who are addicted to gambling? Who lose the, the family house and the car? You think they want to do that? That's, that was their plan? That's where they want to be? I don't think so. And so the idea of captivity is, is that we find ourselves where we don't want to be. But what does Solomon pray? For the people, what we pray they learn? How to do what? How to profit from what? Every circumstance. And there's some people sitting in here that were alcoholics, but are changed and different today because of what they've learned through that. And you can look back and you can say, well, I wish that never happened. I understand why you'd say that, but you wouldn't be the person you are today if it didn't. I get it. I get it. But we wouldn't be the people that we are today if those things didn't happen. I mean, you look at, at Israel, Judah. They were taken captive. They were in Babylonia for 70 years. And and they came back and they, they were allowed to rebuild the temple. They were allowed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were allowed to rebuild their city and their life. And eventually they were allowed to live. But you look at their history after they were taken captive. 
And before that, their history was just just filled with idolatry. It was filled with hot and cold toward God, filled with them being, oh yeah, this is great, you know, I want to worship God, or I'm worshiping Baal, or I'm worshiping an Ashrapal. But that was their history. But when they came back from that captivity, if, if you look at their history and read about their history, what you see is that they never went back to that again after those 70 years. They learned how to profit from even a captivity. And they came back and they lived differently than they did before. That's what happened. And it's just a powerful testimony of what Solomon prayed for the very start is that they would learn they would be changed. They learned to profit by all. And when it comes right down to it, it's a matter of the heart. This is just a matter of our heart. That we begin to perceive that our heart is evil. And then the rest of that question is, and this is the last verse I want to look at. You know, it's like the heart is deceitful above all things. And then a question is asked. This is Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. But say the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? It's a question. And the only answer to that is God. He knows it. And so we, we accept that reality. We accept the reality that only God's going to know the heart. And I know there's popular sayings and songs and poetry and romance novels and whatever else and Hallmark movies to follow your heart. I know, I know. But your heart will fool you and deceive you. And then what? And that's why we recognize our heart for what it really is. We look to the one who really knows our heart. And that's God. We let Him teach us. We let Him lead us. We let Him guide us. Because you know what? He's on our side, and He wants the best for us. But we just have to believe it. We just have to believe that. If you grew up in a church, some of you did, you have a harder time believing that than somebody walks in off the street. Sorry. Because you'd think you'd be at an advantage, right? Growing up in the church... Not in my experience. I spend more time deconstructing stuff that church people think they know than I do teaching truth. So one truth I hope you leave here with God is on your side. He loves you. And He's looking out for you and he wants the best for you. I just want to pray for you for a few minutes. 
And I'm just going to pray some stuff that Solomon prayed as he was consecrating the temple here. And I'll encourage you, if you want to lift your hands, to lift your hands in an act of surrender. If you're excited about something, go to it. You don't have to. I'm not going to even watch. I'm going to just pray. And let's see what God might do in our hearts, our lives. Father, I thank you that uh, you give us all these scriptures where we got wise people that are speaking, that are praying, that are prophesying. And it was all recorded so that we can benefit from it. I thank you for the prayer of Solomon, and I thank you, God, that as he prayed, it was more than just a simple petition. But he was doing a bunch of stuff. He was giving you glory. He was giving you praise. He was asking for favor. He was asking for grace with God. And at the same time, he was experiencing, he was in the midst of experiencing God actually doing stuff that he said he was going to do. And he rejoiced in it. God, I pray for us tonight. As Solomon prayed for the people, I pray, God, that you would teach us. That you would teach us to profit by all. I pray, God, that you would teach us what that means and how to profit in every circumstance. How to profit in every situation. How to profit in everything that we face. And you teach us what that means, like how to grow in those times, how to live and find life in those times. And we're not just talking about surviving. We're talking about actually living. And I pray, God, you teach us how to live and how to profit in those times. God, I thank you that you know who we are. I thank you that you made us through decisions of our ancestors, we are in the state that we're in now. That everybody sins. And if Adam and Eve made different decisions, that, that may not be the case, but it is. And the fact of the matter is, is that everybody sins. And so I thank you, God, that you have made a way of grace, and you've made a way of mercy, and you've made provision for us in that. I pray, God, that you will help us to get free from practices that are corrupt. And God, habits and things that we do sometimes unconsciously, I pray that you will teach us how to get free of that in Jesus' name. God, I pray that you'll make us into faithful people. God, we would be a people that could be counted on and that we would actually look at the people around us and see those that have been faithful to us, see those that have sacrificed, see those that have given, see those that have laid down their time, their effort, sometimes their finances, so that we might have, and sometimes even a sacrifice to themselves. I pray that we'd be a people of allegiance for people like that in our life. 
God, I pray that we just stay honest about areas of temptation in our lives. And you teach us what it is to resist. You teach us what it is to overcome. You teach us how to avoid certain situations, how to use wisdom in our life, to stay away from certain things that bring us down and what that would mean. And I want to pray for those tonight that find themselves captive. And maybe they're captive to certain habits in their life or certain addictions. I pray, God, firstly, you'd set them free. But I ask, God, that you would teach us, teach us how to profit, even from captivity in our life, how to change, how to grow, and how to become, how to live freely in our lives. Because I thank you that you're a God of restoration. I thank you, you're a God that brings his people into places of restoration, growth, maturity, places of abundant life. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And I thank you that you're a God that knows our hearts. I pray that we would lean on, lean on, and depend on you rather than our feelings, rather than even what we think all the time but really learn to depend on you, your wisdom, your insight, your revelation, and your understanding. Give you thanks tonight. We'll give you praise. Ask God that you grow us, grow us, mature us, teach us. Holy Spirit, we started by asking you to teach us. We finished. I ask you to teach us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters... You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. Yeah, see, a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University... UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.